Well, good morning. Join me as I pray, and then we're going to look at our topic today. Father, we thank you that you are a God who knows us and who loves us and who cares for us and put us on this planet for a purpose. And Father, we pray that we would understand what that purpose is and we could live our lives following hard after you in a way that demonstrates to a world that we serve a living God. Be with us, Lord, as we look at our topic today. Uh, Teach us as only you can do, as only your Spirit can do. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would be honored by everything we do and everything we say, and you'd be honored by our response when we walk out of these doors today. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we want to welcome you to our series on Relevant Faith. We appreciate you being here today. We are answering questions that we believe every man and woman and boy and girl have to answer. Last week, uh, Dave DiDonato did a fantastic job uh, setting up this series when he talked about absolute truth. If you haven't watched that or you weren't here, make sure you go do that. That is the foundation for the series. And next week, we're going to be looking at is the Bible reliable, seven things that tell us the Bible is a book we can depend on. Then we're going to be answering the question, is Jesus the only way to God? That's one we have to deal with. Then we're going to be answering the question, if he is, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And finally, is there a heaven and hell? What happens when this life is over? Today, we want to deal with this topic, does God exist? Does God exist? And what we're going to do is we're not going to be looking at Scripture today, but we're going to be looking at science to tell us if God exists. We'll look at physical science, we'll look at natural science, we'll look at anthropology, we'll look at sociology to help us answer the question, does God exist? Now, the reason we're not going to look in Scripture is because when God begins to share His Word with us, He presupposes that we believe in His existence. The first words of Scripture are these. You know them. You can say them with me. You ready? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so the Bible begins with a presupposition that God exists. Inherent in the first words of the Bible is an understanding that a decision regarding the existence of God can be made outside of the Bible. I'm going to say that again. In the very first words of Scripture, there is an inherent teaching that God, the existence of God, can be made outside the Bible because it starts without any apologetic, without any defense, right? In the beginning, God. So I'm going to do this today, and you'll never see me do this other than a sermon on the existence of God. Most of the time, when we are here together, we are opening God's Word and looking through it. And again, next time, I'm going to show you, I'm going to do my best to show you, that this book is reliable. But today, we're going to set the Bible right over here. And we are going to argue outside of the Bible 
for the existence of God. Now, when it comes to the existence of God, you really have two categories. Yes, I believe he exists. No, I don't believe he exists. And the person who says, yes, I believe he exists, we call a theist. That comes from the Greek word for God, theos. And so if you believe God exists, you are a theist. In Greek, when you put the prefix a in front of a word, it means no. And so a person who says there is no God is an a, an atheist. There is no God. So when you answer the question, do I believe in the existence of God? Yes, I'm a theist. No, I'm an atheist. Now, I'm not going to argue today the characteristic of God and who this God is. We'll talk about that later on. Today, just the existence of God. Can we believe with certainty that God exists? There is one more category, and that's called an agnostic. And that comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. And when you put the prefix a in front of a Greek word, what do you got? No, and so an agnostic would say no knowledge. I'm not sure. I don't believe you can have enough knowledge or really figure out if God exists or not. So let's argue from science for the existence of God. And I want to look at three things today. We're first going to argue from the physical world. We're going to argue then from design, and we're going to argue from morality. So let's start with this. We call it cosmology. Cosmology. Cosmos, the world, and logos, a word about the world or a study about the world. Cosmology is a study of the origin of things. How did this thing start? The first line of reasoning for the existence of God is to go out and observe whether you are a theist or an atheist, you can observe the, the physical facts of the universe. Many of them we can see with our eyes. And the existence of the universe is based on scientific proof, right? There are heavenly bodies with different sizes and different shapes, and they are in different distances that make, when we study them, make us feel very, very, very small. The distance between these celestial bodies and, and galaxies are so vast that uh, astronomers have to come up with different terms to describe the distance. And so they use terms like astronomical units. That's 93,000 miles. They use terms like a light year. How many miles is a light year? Just shy of six trillion miles to measure the vastness. You feel pretty small when you think about that, right? And then there's another unit called the parsec, and that is 3.26 light years. And so when you talk about the vastness and the magnificence of the universe, you can't even measure it in our normal units. Astronomers have to, have to come up with these new units. Now, in 1990, 
they launched the Hubble telescope. They just thought the universe was big until they launched the Hubble telescope. And then we saw that there are more mysteries and vastness and magnitude to the universe than ever before. Let me give you some examples. In the Milky Way, the galaxy that contains our solar system, the eight planets that rotate around the sun. Now, if you're older, you're going to say, no, there are nine planets, right? Pluto, they discovered in 1930. However, in 2006, they determined that Pluto is so small, they're not going to call it a planet anymore. And so, there's only eight. You got it? All right. No extra charge for that. Pluto, Pluto is not one of the, the main planets any longer. All right. So, we have our solar system around the sun, and we have these eight planets around the sun. And think about this. There are estimated, scientists estimate, that there are 100 billion to 400 billion stars just in the Milky Way, right? Just in our galaxy. 100 billion to 400 billion stars. And in the observable universe, there are 10 billion galaxies. Let's just say that every galaxy, 10 billion, let's just say that every galaxy has an average of 100 billion stars. That means that in the observable universe, there are this number of stars. That's 1 billion trillion stars. Make you feel kind of small? Carl Sagan, the atheist astronomer, said this. There are more stars in the sky than grains of sand from all the earth's oceans. So science makes the point. Theists or atheists agree that we live in an amazing, amazing, amazing universe. But the question is, how did all this come to be? The theist, in answer to the question of the origin, is going to say, what? The creator. Or, at least, the theist is going to say, I don't know who God is, the supreme being, I'll give you that. At least the theist is going to say, there is a first cause a first cause. Aristotle, uh, way back when, when he was uh, doing uh, his philosophical teaching, Aristotle says, I don't know who this God is, but, but there has to be, he said, one eternal, unmovable mover. One eternal, unmovable mover behind all this. A guy named... Um, uh, Parmenides, he was be even before Socrates, and he's the father of, of metaphysics. Metaphysics is the, is the study of the first principles of stuff. And Parmenides said, nothing 
creates what? Nothing. Nothing creates nothing. And so, in answer to the cosmology question, the theist is going to say, creator, first cause, at least a first cause. The atheist, in answer to the cosmology question, is going to say, it just happened, and there's this thing called evolution, and particularly to how it all happened, they're going to say, Big Bang, right? Now, there are a lot of theories of evolution. There's the string theory. There's the super string theory. There's the M theory. But the Big Bang is what most people think about when they think of how the earth began, at least from the atheist standpoint. Scientists believe that there was this cosmic explosion, this Big Bang, and that cosmic explosion produced all the universe, just that explosion. And then, and then, billions of years later, after this universe is formed by this great explosion, billions of years later, in this chemical soup, a life cell formed, and then that life cell, over another billions of years, evolved into plants and animals and humans. But the atheists can't tell you, the Big Bang theorists can't tell you what caused the Big Bang. It just happened. It just, something happened where it just exploded. Now, if you're a scientist, science is observable and experimental proof, right? So there's no scientists who say, yeah, in a little test tube, I put all this stuff together, and I created an explosion, and a universe appeared. So evolution is a theory, taught as fact, but it is a theory, the Big Bang theory. Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist from Oxford, and he's written a bunch of stuff, but in his book, Ancestor Tale, A Pilgrimage to the Dawn of Evolution, listen to what he says. The universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple, just physics and chemistry, just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space. Dawkins, how did that happen? Oh, I don't know. It just happened. And then he says this, it could have remained lifeless, but the fact is that it did not. Life evolved out of literally nothing. Well, wait a second. Didn't Parmenides say nothing comes from nothing, right? But life evolved out of literally nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved literally out of nothing. Stated as fact, but I don't know if anyone was here 10 billion years ago to observe that. And it certainly has not been, repeat, been repeated. Something came from nothing without any proof. Now again, science is the study of structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Evolution cannot be presented as fact, but theory. Here's the point. None of us were there at creation, right? You can shake your head yes. That is a yes answer. 
We didn't see it. And we can't repeat it. So we have to believe it by what? Faith. Now tell me something. Does it take more faith to believe that something or someone created something? Or nothing created something? You have to have more faith to be an atheist than you do a theist. So let's load up on a bus and we'll go to one of my favorite cities in the whole world, Washington, D.C. Isn't that a great city? It's just a buzz about D.C., right? And so you're in D.C. and you're walking down the mall and we come to the Lincoln Memorial. And you say, tell me some history about the Lincoln Memorial. And so I say, well, here's what happened. There are two theories on this. There are a bunch of rocks piled here. And we don't know how it happened. We don't even know what started, but, but there was just an explosion, and kaboom, here's what happened. <laughs> but there's this other theory that people actually made it, designed it, chiseled it. You, you can decide what you want. It takes more faith to believe that nothing created something than to believe that the Creator created something. The argument of cosmology, science, is an argument for the existence of God. There's another line of argument, and this is called teleology. And teleology, from the Greek word teleos, And the Greek word teleos means the end or the purpose uh, or the design of something. It's the why behind a design. Things are designed with a purpose. Things are designed with an end in mind. And so the evidence of teleos would say that things are created with a purpose. Things are created with a design. They're at a particular place because something or someone put it there. The atheist would say it happened by chance. We'll talk about that in a second. The earth is, and and, and people on the earth, life is so intricate and complex that it would, again, be just as logical to say a bunch of rocks formed the Lincoln Memorial to say that Nothing made this thing so purposeful. The theist would say to this argument, there is at least intelligent design. There is at least intelligent design. The atheist would say in answer, to this question of teleology, end or purpose. Again, this is all under the theme of evolution. The atheist would say what? Natural selection. Over a period of billions and billions and billions of years, we 
adapt to our environment. We develop the things we need to develop. So let's think about that. Let's just think about that. Let's start with the solar system. Atheists believe that the, uh, that the, uh, the, the solar system just, just came about by this explosion and, and molten rock through, through cooling and coalescing formed the four planets with gases and liquids propelled further out and then formed the other four planets. So the question is, how did the earth, three planets from the sun, how did the earth just happen to have everything needed for the existence of life and the sustenance of life? How did in this big bang, when everything was just propelled out, did the earth, this one sphere, have everything needed for life? The earth, unlike all the other planets, has an abundance of water and oxygen, both critical for life. The earth, unlike all the other planets, is a precise distance from the sun, 92.6 million miles. Any closer, and we would what? Burn up. Any further away, and we would what? Freeze to death. Man, maybe there's a little bit of a design behind this, right? The earth is tilted on an axis precisely at 23.5 degrees, allowing for four seasons. The spin of the earth, the spin of the earth is 1,038 miles per hour at the equator. That allows for water to stay on the earth. Jupiter spins faster. That's why there's no water on Jupiter. The water would just spin out if it spun faster. If it slowed down, if it slowed down, the water would hit and become waves and flood out the entire earth. 1,038 miles per hour by chance or by design. Now, evolution teaches that nothing, that something came from nothing over, over billions of years. And evolution teaches that by natural selection, species, now we're talking about life, species over billions of years begin to develop the things they needed to fit into their environment, right? We grew, evolution says, the theory, we grew into our environment. So we didn't have this at billions and billions of years ago, but because of the environment, this was developed in a species, this cell, and then pretty soon arms and legs, and pretty soon a man came, right? Billions of years. So remember, evolution says that you adapt to your environment, right? So here's an interesting thing. Environmental, environmentalists tell us that the ocean, global warming, has risen by one degree Fahrenheit in the last few decades. One degree Fahrenheit. And evolutionists, most of who are, are environmentalists, most of whom are evolutionists, 
they tell us that that one degree is cratering the ecosystem, right? Have you heard this? One degree is cratering the ecosystem. One degree is going to kill the, the plankton, the bottom of the ocean, which will kill the animals that eat the plankton, which won't have food for the animals that eat the animals that eat the plankton, and all the way up the food chain, right? Now think about this. Evolution says, over billions of years, we adapt to our environment. Why are we worried? Wouldn't a, deg- would it, wouldn't a degree, wouldn't you adapt to the environment? You wouldn't go extinct. You would adapt to that one degree of temperature. So global warming whatever you feel about that, is in opposition to evolution. Because evolution says we don't have to worry about it. By natural selection, species will adapt. But the environmentalists says, time out. The ecosystem is so intricate, so complex, that that's going to mess up everything. You can't have it both ways, can you? That's the earth. The design of the earth is intricate and complex. Let's look at the body. Again, we could, we could look at a lot of things here, right? But let's look at the body, and let's look at one of the smallest organs of the body, the eye. The eye is amazing. So, if you're a an expert in this area. I'm going to hit this like 50,000 feet, but here's the way the eye works, right? So here's the cornea, the lens on the front of the eye that allows light in, goes into the pupil, right? Pupil dilates regarding uh, how much light comes in, but the iris is the thing that allows light to come in, that, uh, that uh, tells the pupil uh, how to adjust. And then that shoots to the lens, and the lens propels it back to the retina. When it gets to the retina, it's inverted. The retina turns it around and then uh, puts it into an electrical uh, impulse uh, and then goes to the optic nerve and to the brain, and that happens like 500,000 Things are happening all at once in the eye. I was mowing my, our, our grass yesterday, and I looked out over the neighborhood, and I wondered why everyone's grass looks better than ours, but that was another, another issue. Um, and as I was doing that and seeing trees and sky, th- my eye was taking in 500,000 messages just like that, taking it through the cornea to the pupil, the iris regulating the pupil, then sending it through the lens, back to the retina, back to the optic nerve, just like that. Now, evolution says that we adapt to our environment, right? So, the question is, how in the world would the eye adapt to the environment? Because you have to have 
a fully developed I to be an I. Right? So, if a billion years went by and the cornea was developed because it's evolution, then in another 10 billion years, by the time the pupil could be developed, the cornea is not going to be there anymore because there's no need for the cornea without the pupil. That makes sense? So by natural selection, the cornea would go away by the time the pupil got there, and then the pupil wouldn't work because the cornea is not there. Now you say, that's eh, too simplistic. There's got to be a good answer for that. Way, way, way too simplistic. Okay, great question. Great question. So let's go to an evolutionist, and let's not go to any evolutionist. Let's go to the father of evolution, Charles Darwin. How did Darwin explain the evolution of the eye, right? So here are his words. To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable uh, contrivances for the adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction, chromatic aberration, to suggest that that could have been formed by natural selection, this is Darwin, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. That's Darwin, the father of evolution. He says, I, I, I freely confess, I got no answer for the I. I freely confess that the principles, the theory of the principles of evolution gives absolutely no answer for the I. In fact, it's absurd, absurd in the highest sense. So you have the argument of cosmology, the world. You have the argument of design. And one other argument is, and again, I won't hit this very hard because Dave did this great job on this last week, is morality, sociology, anthropology. And a theist says in morality, there is absolute truth, right? The atheist, when it comes to morality, says it's relative. Truth is determined by man and determined over, it, truth evolves, determined over time based on what's going on at a particular time. So, in other words, an atheist would say, a person who believes in no absolute truth, it's, it's relative, would say that everything is up for grabs. So, who says? Who, who, who could say Mother Teresa, the Catholic uh, nun who did so much work in Albania, who says Mother Teresa was good and Hitler was bad? Who can say that? Who could say that Hitler, through the process of selective elimination, if there's no moral standard, who says that was wrong? Who says? 
Who could say? Why could we say? Is a question that the guy who killed over 20 people in El Paso, Texas was a racist and a murderer. Who can say that if you hold to relativism? Because if you hold to relativism, there's no absolute truth. His reasons for doing that, and relativism, his reasons for doing that would be as good as your reasons for not doing it. And so the question is, why do we believe that's not right? Why is it that I can't steal your car keys and drive off with your car? Why would you say that's wrong? It's relative. Why is it that someone can't break into your home and, God forbid, kill your child? Who says that's wrong? If there's no absolute truth, our society is up for grabs. Where does that come from? Well, the evolutionists would say it evolves over time in societies. That's why truth changes, because we evolve. But time out. The anthropologists would say, go back and study man. And without the Ten Commandments, without ever reading the Ten Commandments, murder has always been wrong in any tribe. And even without the Ten Commandments, go into the deepest, darkest jungle of Africa, and you don't break into someone's hut and kill their child. That's wrong. But who says that's wrong? Theists would say, this God, supreme being, the creator, plants that in our heart. See, even the atheist would say, you can't kill my child. But I would say, why? Because there's no absolute truth. Oh, but there is. There's always absolute truth, right? Because it's right here in our hearts. Why is it that the anthropologist can go to the, 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 the history of time and every people, every people has worshipped something? For the Canaanites, it was Baal. For the Babylonians, it was Marduk. For the Greeks, it was Zeus. For the Romans, it was uh, Jupiter. Everybody's worshiping something. Who, why, why is that? Why is it that you can go see these altars built around the world? Why is it that someone says, man, something greater is out there? And there's this, this, this truth to live by. See, the theist says, that's an argument from science, anthropology, and sociology that God exists and places within our heart. And certainly it's dulled, right, by sin. And certainly uh, it gets messed up. But there's the bottom line truth. Why is it that a serial killer hides? <laughs> he knows he's wrong. 
Do serial killers go turn themselves in after the first time and said, hey, I killed him, and I thought it was right? No, that's why they're called a serial killer. They hide. So they got to know down deep, certainly perverted and dulled, what I'm doing is wrong. Who puts that there? If not God. David Foster Wallace was um, an American writer and university professor. His novel, Infinite Jest, was listed in Time Magazine as one of the best, 100 best English language novels published between 1923 and 2005. Another book he wrote, The Pale King, was a finalist for, for the Pulitzer Prize for fiction 2012. Wallace's parents were atheists and he struggled all his life with does God exist or doesn't he? Uh, he, um, he was a complex man but he said twice he tried to join the Roman Catholic Church and he said quote unquote I flunked out during the period of inquiry. He said, I just had too many questions. He um, suffered from depression. He suffered from alcoholism, drug addictions. And then in 2008, he took his life. He, he had an idea about God. It, it wasn't the God we would believe from the Bible. Most people think that he got his idea about God from some of the recovery programs that he was in. He never claimed to be a Christian. But listen to what he says about God. In a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005, by the way, I said this, I, I talked about this last night, and a person in our service was at that commencement address. He talked about, uh, he gave this parable about a religious guy and an atheist. And he said there were these, uh, an atheist and a religious guy sitting in a bar. And they started talking about, uh, you know, why does God exist or why God doesn't exist. And the atheist said, here's why I believe God does not exist. I was hiking. They were in Alaska. I'm in a, hiking in Alaska, and I got lost, and it was 50 degrees below zero, and I thought I was going to die. And I thought, I'm gonna, you know, I don't believe in God, but I'm going to try it. And I prayed, God, if, there, if you were there, then save me from freezing to death out here in the wilderness. And he never answered my prayer, but after a while, two Eskimos came by and led me back to safety. And the religious guy said, well, possibly could the Eskimos been sent by God? And that was the point of his um, parable. And here's what he said. We always say that religious people are dogmatic, but the atheist is just as dogmatic in his belief that God doesn't exist. Plus, Wallace says, there's the whole matter of arrogance. The non-religious guy is totally certain in his dismissal of the possibility that the passing Eskimos had anything to do with his prayer for help. 
Listen to what he says. This kind of closed-mindedness, Wallace concludes, quoting from Wallace, amounts to an imprisonment so total that the prisoner doesn't even know he's locked up. That kind of arrogance amounts to such an imprisonment that the guy in prison doesn't even know he's in prison. Now, quoting Wallace, listen to what he says. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Worship anything besides God, he says. And it will eat you alive. Because we are made to worship God. This creator, evidenced by science, writes us this love letter that we'll talk about next time. And he says, I created you just for me. And I love you so much that when sin separated us, I sent my son Jesus Christ to die on a cross and pay the penalty for your sin so that we could be together for eternity. If you don't know that God through his son Jesus, we would love to talk with you. We would love to continue this conversation. We would love to show you from Scripture about this God who loves you intimately and deeply so much that he would send his only son to die just for you. Lord, we thank you that we can look around, that the heavens declare your glory and we can look around us in nature in the world, and we can see that you exist, that you are there, and you are a Father who loves us. Drive that home, Lord, as only you can do in our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.